If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Have you ever wondered what it's like to bite into nerds' gummy clusters? They're fruity. They're tangy. They're gummy. And they're crunchy. Nerds Gummy Clusters, a union of fruity sweet gummy and tangy crunchy nerds. Unleash your senses. Shop now at nerdscandy.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Today, we think of English houses as idyllic locations for a lovely afternoon out. But, as author Stephanie Barczewski reveals in today's episode, many have a more turbulent and violent history than we might expect. From the wholesale destruction of the Reformation and the damage caused by the Civil War, to financial instability and the influence of empire, Eleanor Evans spoke to Stephanie to find out more about the fascinating hidden histories of these beloved beauty spots. A visit to a country house in England today for many means a pastoral setting. Perhaps it's surrounded by parkland or it might have a lovely walking tour through galleries or cloisters. It's a recreational, often calming or quiet activity. And Stephanie, your book offers another layer, a fascinating look at the realities of the history of the English country house. And yes, we do mean English here. Stephanie, I was wondering, can you introduce us first off to listeners of what brought you to this project? Well, some years ago, I had written a book on country houses and the British Empire. I had been interested in both the financial and the cultural impact of the British Empire on country houses. So looking at how many country houses were funded by imperial profits, and then the ways in which country houses also became sites of display for imperial artifacts and things like that. And I found quite a lot of imperial influence, so I wrote a book about that. But the lingering question in my mind after I finished that book was that there was a lot of influence in various ways, but there were limits on that influence in others. And and specifically what I mean by that is there were very few, if any, really country houses in Britain as a whole, which 
reflected imperial architecture, right? There's no Indian style or Australian style or Canadian style houses in Britain itself. And and so I became intrigued by this question of there was a lot of imperial influence, but there were sort of limits on it as well. The second thing that happened in between that book and this book was Brexit. And you might think Brexit is a long way from the world of a country, the country house, and it is. But in the last 30 years of, of British history, the main field of study has been the British Empire. And I think what Brexit caused me to think about was that we had sort of forgotten about Europe, that empire is hugely important. But what we also had sort of let slide a little bit was the longstanding relationship between Britain and the European continent. And I think Brexit sort of reminded us of that, that this is a hugely important dynamic in British history. The second thing that Brexit, I think, reminded us all of was the importance of Englishness. Because Brexit really should be called Exit, right? That Brexit was the product of English votes. And I think a lot of historians suddenly started thinking, hmm, Englishness, which is this sort of slippery thing that we tend not to think about as much as we think about maybe Scottishness or Welshness, that it has importance as a national identity in and of itself. And, and it's a more complex national identity, even though it's easy to dismiss it, than sort of cross of St. George waving national front right wingness, that Englishness is, is more complicated than that. And so those were the two reasons why I decided to return to the subject of looking at the country house, in addition to the fact that, of course, it's pleasant research, right? I mean, you get to go around and visit lots of country houses and, and see lots of very beautiful places. So, so the opportunity to go back and do that again was also quite welcome. Yes, I'm sure a lot of listeners are familiar with that pleasantness that you talk about, that they will have visited these places themselves and thought, oh, how lovely these places are. But these places have often very violent, very unstable histories, as your book entails, and then obviously reflect the instability of English history, which is potentially masked by this facade of these wealthy places. Can we perhaps start where you do with possibly the most violent era of all, the Reformation? What does that mean for a lot of these sites? in your book? Yeah, I, I mean, I think we've, again, become used to thinking about recovering some of these histories of these more complex and indeed violent histories of country houses through the history of the British Empire, right? The National Trust in recent years has has faced a lot of questions about the incorporation of empire into its houses. Some people think there's been too little, some people think there's been too much, but certainly that's been a way in which the more complex and unpleasant and violent histories of these houses have been incorporated. But what I wanted to recover was some of the other ways in which these houses have these very violent histories. So as you mentioned, the Reformation is one obvious one. So the 1530s come along, you know, you've got these massive monasteries. I mean, they're the biggest buildings in, in England in the 16th century. And then with basically the stroke of a pen by Henry VIII, they are dissolved. They're taken out of existence as religious foundations. And then they're sort of sitting there and other purposes need to be found for them. And one of the purposes that's found for them is that some of them are converted to country houses. Now, that's not a violent process in the sense of it being a war, but it is a violent process in the sense of it being incredibly disruptive. These buildings have been the center, not just of religious belief in their communities, but of society. They had been the timekeepers, the bells ringing, or what told people basically what time it was in the 16th century. And so, so their removal in their traditional role is incredibly disruptive and sort of socially and culturally violent. And then hundreds of them are converted most of them immediately, there's a sort of cheap way of converting a country house, which is you basically take the cloister of a monastery, which is already designed as kind of living space, and then you can convert that to a sort of courtyard house, right? A house with a courtyard in the middle. 
works pretty well. Not ideal, but pretty well. And then over time, some more ambitious builders start to build fancier houses. And then also some of these places are dismantled stone by stone. And then this, because stone is incredibly valuable and a lot of the stone for monasteries, which I think is something else we forget about them, is imported from France. It's this incredibly expensive, good stone. And so that stone is recycled into other houses. And you can go all over England today and see little bits of stone that were taken from monasteries, little archways and things. And it's, it's really fascinating to think about that process. But I think sometimes we do sort of skip over the violence of that history of them. I think another way, a century later, in which country houses become the sites of great violence is the English Civil War, right? Which is the most violent event in English history. It's more violent per capita than the First World War or the Second World War is in terms of the number of people who die. It's incredibly destructive. I was able to map about 150 houses which were severely damaged or destroyed in the Civil War. There were probably more, right? These are just the ones that I was able to pinpoint on the map. If you put them on a map, you can literally see that they follow a line, right, along which most of the fighting took place. The the parliamentary side destroyed more of the houses. The royalist side destroyed about a third, and then the parliamentary side destroyed about two-thirds. There were about seven or eight houses that were unlucky enough to get destroyed by both. The sort of parliamentarians marched through and destroyed them, and then a year later, the royalists would march through and destroy them. And so this event is, again, incredibly violent. And one thing I was interested in, well, I guess two things I was interested in, in terms of Englishness, is we think about Englishness as being very stable and very calm. And I think in England, there's great pride in the kind of continuity of political institutions. The parliament's been around for a thousand years. And we forget about that centuries ago, England had a reputation for being a very unstable, very violent place. And and this is a quite recent development in English history as to when this reputation for kind of continuity and stability becomes a kind of fundamental prop of English national identity. So I think it's, you know, seeing how this transition takes place in terms of country houses was a big part of what my book was all about. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash history extra. 
Right. And it's a fascinating transformation, a fascinating lens to look at a lot of these histories. I wonder if we can dig in a little bit more into some of those clues. You just mentioned the English Civil War and a study that really popped out from your book to me was Corfe Castle and, and then Kingston Lacey that follows on. What sort of clues are happening there and what evidence are you unearthing here to tell that story? Yeah, I think Cork Castle in Dorset, right? And many people have seen it. I mean, you can't miss it if you happen to be down in South Dorset and you drive by. It's this, this jagged, you know, looks like a, a kind of mouth with missing teeth in it that appears on the horizon. It's a very, very dramatic silhouette. And I think we see it. And first of all, we think, oh, something bad happened in the Middle Ages, you know, and this is this is a product of a distant time in which the world was, you know, a very different place. And in fact, Corf Castle was very much consciously destroyed in the English Civil War. And it's not, this is not a sort of picturesque ruin that has decayed over time either. This is a castle that was blown up by the parliamentary forces at the end of the Civil War. And when you start to look at the ruin, you can really see that. You can see these huge chunks of masonry that just have toppled over. You can, you can see that they had a really hard time getting this thing destroyed because it was a very formidably built building. You get a sense of just this wrenching force and violence that destroyed this place. And then you can go maybe 20 miles away to Kingston Lacey, which is a house owned by the same family, the Banks family. Because they were forced to abandon Corf Castle, then they transferred their main place of residence to Kingston Lacey, which to me is one of the most elegant, lovely houses in England. It's it's, it's essentially a late 17th century house that was then in the 19th century made over by uh, Sir Charles Barry, who's m- probably most familiar to us because he's the main architect of the new Houses of Parliament in the 1830s. And then probably even more recently, we think of him as the architect of Highclere Castle, which is the house in Downton Abbey. So we're all kind of familiar with Barry's work, even if, if we haven't heard of him. And, and he remakes Kingston Lacey into, you know, what I think, again, is, is this very elegant and lovely house. And I think that juxtaposition of Kingston Lacey as it stands today versus the jagged ruin of Corf Castle tells us a lot about the course of English history, but it also tells us a lot about changing conceptions of what Englishness is all about, right? Again, this transition from this very violent period in the 16th and 17th centuries into then in more modern times, England as this, you know, at least in terms of its self-conception, as this model of continuity and stability. So as well as the immense physical destruction of the Civil War, you mentioned that some houses were beholden to even violence from both sides of the conflict. There's also the financial disruption that besets people after the conflict and, and beyond. Perhaps a good example of this is, is Sissinghurst. Can we perhaps zero in on that story a little? Yeah, absolutely. People go to Sissinghurst today because it has the most famous garden, you know, one of the most famous gardens in England. It's beautiful. It's lovely. But, you know, there's sort of a house missing in Sissinghurst, right? I mean, there's a tower, but there's not really much else there. And, and it's a house, you know, where the family has really struggled since the Civil War to have the money to fund the house properly. And I think that's something that I was looking at in the book is these kind of long lingering echoes of the Civil War. I mean, there's a house called Little Morton Hall in Cheshire that is this, it's a half timbered, you know, quintessentially English looking house. It's kind of wonky, right? It leans. It's very picturesque. Again, one of the most visited National Trust properties. And the thing about Little Morton Hall is we look at it and go, oh, that's lovely and it's picturesque. Well, the reason it's lovely and picturesque is because the family couldn't afford to rebuild it after the Civil War because they backed the wrong side. And that happens over and over again. The people who back the royalist side, and heaven forbid if you back the royalist side and you happen to be Catholic, or even if you happen to be Catholic at that time and didn't back the royalist side, you probably were accused of backing the royalist side anyway, that these families were heavily fined. They were they were sent, you know, plunged into bankruptcy when the parliamentary side emerges victorious. And, and many of them never recover. So a house like Little Morton that's sort of sitting there in its delightfully wonky state 
if the family had backed the right side in the English Civil War, they probably would have knocked it down in the 18th century and built a lovely Palladian house to replace it. And we wouldn't have wonky little Morton Hall. We see a lot of these these kind of moated manor houses. So a house like Oxborough Hall in Norfolk might be a good example. That's another example. That house sits there in its lovely kind of late medieval, very early, early modern form because the family was Catholic, because they were hurt by the kind of vicissitudes of English history, Reformation, Civil War, etc. And they never had money to rebuild the house. And so in some ways, picturesque Sissinghurst is another example of that sort of thing, that these things aren't old because England has always valued its past and has valued continuity and stability, right? They're, they're sitting there in their old form exactly because of this sort of violence and chaos in English history. They represent that more than they represent the kind of stability and continuity. And before we move on too much from this very violent period, you've mentioned the destruction against these homes, you know, fire or pulling down stone by stone that happened in these centuries. I guess there's a really interesting angle of of violence being perpetrated against people. I'm thinking the priest holes that are explored in your book, what are these? Where did you find them? What can they tell us about this period? In the 16th century, obviously, during the Reformation, Catholics for most of the period, after 1530s, with some exception, when Mary I was on the throne, were persecuted. Now, the the level of persecution varied, but Catholicism was illegal, right? It was illegal to practice it. It was illegal to be a Catholic priest. In spite of this, many people, wealthy and poor in England, believed that Catholicism was the true faith and, and attempted to keep practicing it. So priests would sneak into the country, very much at peril of their own lives, and would then find refuge in the houses of wealthy people. And in order to hide them, there would be secret places in these houses. And and the designers of these places, the most famous of whom uh, was named Nicholas Owen, got sort of cleverer and cleverer in terms of designing them, you know, because obviously the people who were trying to catch them became more and more adept at it. So they would knock on the walls and find if there were holes in the walls and things. But they became very adept, these designers, at finding secret hiding places. But of course, sometimes the priests would get caught who were in them. And then you would have these episodes, again, of, you know, sort of terrible violence where they would be, you know, sort of dragged out, you know, usually not executed on the spot, but would be taken away, you know, put on some sort of trial, which, you know, there was a foregone conclusion as to how it was going to come out. And then they would be executed, not in a kind of humane way, right? But we, you know, beheaded, drawn, quartered, the full, you know, kind of early modern spectacle. And so you can still see, and in a lot of houses, I mean, there's a house called Harvington Hall in Warwickshire that has like seven or eight of these priest holes in it. And I think we, we again, sort of forget today when we see them, we get sort of fascinated by the, the spectacle of it, but we forget, you know, the, the kind of how these, these sites were these scenes of incredible violence. And part of the reason why we might forget that is, as you say, this broader trend of English history, the way that it's been perceived, this veneer perhaps of stability. How do these houses lean into that picture? The crucial century is the 18th century. And I think in two ways. You get a transition from very great political instability to political stability over the course of the 18th century. You also start to see over the course of the 18th century, England as the center of the British metropolis becoming the dominant power in Europe. And as it becomes the dominant power in Europe, the rise of English power is seen as the result of English superiority and first of all, it's political system, right? So the main rival of England in this period is France. France is an absolutist monarchy. So there's great pride of the English parliament. And then the second thing is the triumph of Protestantism 
the Protestant religion becomes the basis of English greatness, right? That it's because we are Protestant that England is now this dominant power in the world, which really is in place after the Seven Years' War ends in 1763. And so country houses become sort of symbolic of that transition. So we start to see the English past being reinterpreted. So instead of this tumultuous Protestant Reformation of the 16th century, the 16th century becomes the point at which Protestantism triumphed, right? So you start to see things like the ruins of these religious foundations from the 16th century, which are still lingering all over the country, they start to become incorporated into the landscape gardens of country houses, right? The most famous example, some of your listeners may be familiar with this Fountains Abbey in Yorkshire, a beautiful site that many people have visited, where this incredibly wealthy medieval monastery has been converted into an 18th century landscape garden. It's a great site to go see, to, to get a sense of this. And because it's because at this point, the violence has sort of receded into the past. England is now stable and powerful. And so these sites can be reinterpreted as where that triumph took place. This is where that victory was won. And so they can be now celebrated. They're not embarrassments that need to be converted to something else or hidden away. The sites can now be, you know, kind of taken out of the closet and, and put on display as, you know, look, this is the battle that we won in order to make England as great as it is in the present. So I think that's one point of kind of transition. The big point of transition, though, is the French Revolution. We all think about the storming of the Bastille, right? But the French Revolution is incredibly destructive of old buildings in lots of ways. There's this idea behind the French Revolution that we're going to literally remake the world, going to destroy the old world and make a new world. And so medieval buildings in particular all over France get destroyed. Well, people in England are horrified about that. The kind of transition in attitude towards the French Revolution in England is initially people go, oh, this is great, right? France is going to become more like us. They're going to get away from this absolute monarchy, which is bad, right? They're going to create a parliament that is much more like our system, and it'll be great. France will be more like us. And then the French Revolution starts to get more radical, and then people in England are horrified by this. And so in terms of country houses, the form that this takes is people in England start literally kind of rebuilding castles, right? As castles are being destroyed in France, in England, you see this surge of castellated Gothic architecture, right? So, so Gothic style houses that literally look like castles. And I was really surprised by this. I mean, I tried to kind of quantify some of the arguments I was making in the book as much as I possibly could. It's difficult to quantify cultural history sometimes, but you can find ways to do it. And one way I did this was by plotting the number of castellated Gothic houses that were built. And I thought when I was doing this, that when I got to the 1790s, so when the French Revolution, you know, becomes the, the more radical French Revolution, that you would see maybe a gentle little bump. Well, no. I mean, I saw a dramatic spike in the number of castellated houses, like one that is just impossible to miss on any kind of chart. And so I would interpret that as this was very much a reaction against the French Revolution, that what in England people were saying, particularly the wealthy people who were the most worried, right, about they were going to get their heads chopped off if this kind of thing spread to England, is what they were saying is we don't do this in England. That in England, what we value is tradition and continuity, right? We value the old over the new. And so they were literally building houses that were intended to embody that perspective. Right. So if that's one way that Englishness has been defined in this period is looking across the channel and saying, it's not that. What's happening in the borders within Britain? What can we see happening on the Welsh border? I know there's obviously something going on there with castles that are popping up at this time. And Scotland, what did you find out there? Well, what I found out, right, was when you think about it, 
there is no such thing as a British country house, right? And this was, in fact, one of the titles of the chapters in the book. Because what is a British country house, right? If we think about it, yes, there are country houses in Britain. Obviously, there are country houses all over the British Isles. But there is no country house that we would think of as it represents sort of England, Scotland, and Wales altogether. That there are English country houses, there are Scottish country houses. There aren't really Welsh country houses in sense of a distinctive architectural style. And I started thinking, why isn't that? Why did a not hybrid sort of architecture emerge in the UK in terms of country houses? And my argument about that is that it's it's because of the uniqueness of the border zones between the various parts of the British Isles, which remained fortified and defended for a very long time. So the Welsh one, you know, sort of well into the early modern period, you know, again, well past the medieval period. And then the Scottish one, really, all the way up until the 18th century. Like, that is still a kind of defensible border. So the border zones would ordinarily be the place where this architectural hybridity, you know, between, say, England and Scotland might develop as Scottish styles spread south and English styles spread north. But because you had these weird, right, these distinctive border zones where the main purpose of architecture remained defense for a very long time, that didn't happen. Those border zones almost acted as a literal physical barrier to the spread of kind of cultural hybridity. And so what you get is in England, still very much distinctively English styles in the sense that they remain distinctive to England, of country houses in Scotland, you get later developing a sort of Scottish national style, which is the Scottish baronial style. So if, if people have seen maybe Sir Walter Scott's Abbotsford in the Scottish borders, that would be a classic example of that. But that's really a reaction to the kind of romantic Scottish nationalism that develops in the late 18th and 19th centuries. Again, it's, it's not a British style of architecture in any way. It's, it's the Scots, you know, attempting to still define in a cultural form their national independence. Then in terms of Wales, you, you can't really have this kind of hearkening back to the Welsh past because the Welsh past is very much complicated by the fact that, that medieval style architecture in Wales is sort of tainted by its associations with the medieval conquest of, of Wales by Edward I. And so his famous Iron Ring of Castles. So Conwy, Carnarvon, Harlech, those very famous, the most famous castles in Britain, probably. And so you, what you don't see is a kind of style of architecture developing that harkens back to the Welsh past. And so instead of any kind of hybrid British style of country house emerging, what you get are kind of three different historical trajectories defining three different modes of country house building that develop in each one. I mean, which ends up with the Scottish having distinctive style, the Welsh really not having a particularly distinctive style, and then the English, you know, kind of maintaining their own style. But I think it's something that we don't think about a lot in terms of country houses and and why not, why it doesn't. It's such an interesting question. And I think where I want to go next is empire and the cultural permeability there. Can you talk more broadly about that phenomenon? Yeah, it's it's a really long history of kind of imperial influence on the country house. And as I said, in, my, in the first book that I wrote about country houses, I wrote about how much imperial influence there was. You know, this was a sort of counterpoint to that. It was it was a little bit of a check on it. If we start in the kind of late 16th, early 17th century, when, when the British Empire gets going for the first time, what we see reflected in country houses is curiosity about empire. So we see suddenly indigenous American figures, either carved in wood or in plaster work, start to pop up on fireplaces and ceilings and things like that. These these kind of grotesque and not very accurate representations of them, but that's still what they are supposed to be. And again, I think like people were curious about what was going on in the empire. As we move forward in time, the empire becomes centered on the American colonies, 
And there's a sense of trying to create an imperial world, an Anglo-imperial world. So country house architecture starts to try to develop in a way that will reflect shared values, right? Shared culture across the empire. So what you start to see is, is country houses in the American colonies. I, I live in South Carolina in America, which has some very impressive 18th century plantation houses on the coast. And, and I would point out at this point that I'm going to talk about the beauty and elegance of these houses, but they obviously are underlain by a very ugly history, which is, which is the history of slavery in the North American colonies. And South Carolina was very much the center of that. But what you start to see are you get Palladian houses in England, so these neoclassical houses of this particularly distinctive style that we refer to as the English Palladian. And then you start to see sort of smaller versions of those being replicated across the empire. So so here in South Carolina, we have, for example, a house called Drayton Hall on the coast, which is this very elegant and lovely sort of miniature version of an English Palladian house. So that's an attempt to kind of create a sort of shared imperial identity. But then the American Revolution happens. The American colonies are lost, and what historians refer to as the Second British Empire, which is centered not on America and not on this idea of a unified Anglo world, but is really centered on India as the most important part of the British Empire. And so the British find themselves ruling for the first time large numbers of non-white peoples. They have to get to grips with that. And I think there's this really interesting moment at the end of the 18th century when they think, huh, maybe we, maybe we shouldn't try to rule this empire by force, right? We've learned from America that that doesn't really work. There's an interesting example of when they get Quebec at the end of the Seven Years' War, the British decide to let Quebec be Quebec, right? They don't try to force the French there to speak French. They don't try to change their religion. They basically leave Quebec alone, which is why Quebec remains distinctively French to this very day. And it's a kind of interesting experiment in imperial governance. And I think they, they think about trying that in India, right? As, as they get to grips with ruling the Indian subcontinent. And, and it's, it's, you know, a very different place from Britain itself. And so you see for the first time, Houses popping up in Britain itself, which have a strong imperial architectural influence. It is a brief and fleeting and very limited moment, but it does happen. And, and the best example of that is a country house called Sezincote, which is in Gloucestershire in the Cotswolds. So if you're in the Cotswolds, go see it because it's, it's one of the most interesting country houses in Britain. And it's in private hands. So because it's not national trust or anything, people don't tend to visit it as much, but it is the only fully Indian style country house in Britain. It looks like a little miniature Taj Mahal sitting there in the Cotswolds. And it's just this, you know, just this incredibly fascinating house. And I think it's a product of this moment when the British are thinking maybe the way to rule our empire is through understanding, through trying to find points of shared cultural similarity. And if we get to know the people who were ruling and we, and we sort of respect the people who were ruling, then maybe that's the way to go. But that moment doesn't last. By 1800, that sort of fleeting moment is gone and it's been determined, really, that the way to rule this new empire centered on India is going to be more by dominance and force, by asserting, and in a cultural sense, by asserting the superiority of European civilization. And so that's what you start to see in India itself. You start to see this kind of imposition of neoclassical buildings initially and, and later Gothic European-style buildings sort of imposed on Indian cities and other Indian locales. And then back in Britain itself... The way that you start to see imperial influence manifesting in country houses 
is in two ways. One, you start to see sort of the display of trophies. So trophies from things like the defeat of Tipu Sultan at Seringapatam right around 1800. And then about 50 years later, the Indian Rebellion of 1857, you start to see these kind of trophy items brought back from those and put on display in country houses. And then the second way you start to see the empire being displayed is it's almost anthropological. It's it's this this idea of imperial difference being displayed in kind of museums and country houses, so collections of anthropological objects, in some cases, collections of taxidermic objects, right? This kind of mass slaughter of wildlife that's taking place all over the empire. Up in Scotland, there's the house that has this giant taxidermic museum, and you can walk into it, and there's a sort of giraffe head sticking out of the floor, which I find very disconcerting. And this kind of thing is is, is sort of going on all over the country, in, in England as well as in Scotland. And I think what these two forms, so this military trophies, and then these, these kind of anthropological and, and taxidermic specimens, reflect is a sense of imperial difference that's now being used to assert British superiority and British dominance over the peoples of India and then later peoples of Africa and other parts of Asia as the empire continues to expand over the course of the 19th century. And there's also the species that get introduced as a result of some of this permeability as well. Can you talk about those? Oh, yeah. I'm so, I'm so glad you asked this because this is my favorite thing in all the world. So one of the aspects of this that, that happens is that these wealthy country house owners, they bring back live animals, right? We would never allow this today. I mean, obviously, it you know it would lead to trouble. And indeed, it does, right? Lead, lead to trouble. So they'll bring back all kinds of animals, put them in private menageries. And then one thing they also do is bring back all types of deer from all over the empire, from Asia and Africa as well. And, and they'll put them in deer parks. Well, deer are, you know, crafty animals, they can jump, they get out, and they do get out all over the country. And so, you know, some of your listeners have probably seen a muntjac, right? I mean, I've heard estimates there's up to 200,000 muntjac roaming around England. They're elusive. You don't you don't see them that much, but you can see them. Well, that's a direct result of this importation of these exotic animals. They're now sort of causing trouble because there's too many of them. You know, England doesn't have any natural big predators at this point. And so they're just proliferating all over the place. And now I think there's discussions that the muntjac might have to be reduced in numbers. My personal favorite is in Norfolk and Suffolk, in the, in the basic in the area of the Norfolk Broads, there's something called a Chinese water deer, which is just this adorable deer that has fangs instead of antlers, and it has this little teddy bear face. That's another one that escaped from this. I think there were wallabies that were roaming the Peak District for a while that had also gotten loose from somebody's estate. Nobody's seen one in a while, so I think they're I think they think they're gone. I think there's still wallabies on the Isle of Man that got loose from from somebody's estate. So it's it's very interesting, I think, biologically, right? That there's all these kind of non-indigenous species that are roaming the English countryside to this day because of this kind of moment where people were sort of collecting things and bringing them back from the empire and displaying them in their country houses. Absolutely. It's fascinating. And it's clear that so many of these houses, obviously the sites of immense violence, of immense transformation, they have so much to say about English history, about the idea of Englishness. But I wanted to also ask about the transformation of many of these places into tourist hubs, to places that people visit today. How, how did that start coming about? It has a long history. There's been country house tourism, you know, really since the 18th century in the sense that people could, could kind of walk up to a house and say, you know, hey, can I come in and see it? And often if they, you know, weren't too dirty or smelly, they'd be let in. Um, and, and the butler or somebody would sort of tour them around the house. So there was this kind of informal country house tourism. But what we think of as country house tourism in a modern sense is a 20th century phenomenon. It's, it's really a result of country houses losing the ability to support themselves through their traditional 
method, which is agriculture, right? So there's a big agricultural depression around the world in the late 19th century that very much affects the profitability of country houses. And then the second factor that kicks in in the early 20th century is increased taxation, right? Which really begins in the kind of first decade of the 20th century and then increases through the end of the Second World War. Country houses can't support themselves anymore. Um, Downton Abbey, right, for, for those uh, who watch that, it very much attempts to tell that story, the struggle of the country house to, to maintain its viability. And so they have to find other ways to make money. And, and one of the obvious ways to do that is to open up the doors and let people come in. So, you know, first private houses start to do that. And then as time goes on, country house owners start to make deals where they'll leave their house or sell their house to the National Trust entities like that. Sometimes they get to keep living there, right? We've probably all been in National Trust houses where the family's still living in one wing of the house and that sort of thing. But we start to see in the post-World War II era, this kind of explosion of country house tourism, which, you know, for all the kind of debates about the National Trust and how the houses are displayed, country house tourism is booming, right? It's a booming phenomenon. Membership in the National Trust goes up every year, even though I think it's a little bit of a state of flux right now as to the balance between houses and the natural landscapes that the National Trust manages as well. It's a post-war phenomenon. I think that it's evolved though very much in recent decades. I think even before this moment now where we're debating, you know, the kind of place of, of empire in the world of the country house, I think that's huge moment in, in transition and in, in kind of the nature of country house tourism took place in the really in the 1970s and 80s when people started getting more interested, not so much in the owners of the houses, but in the domestic servants. There's a house called Earthig in Wales that I think was very instrumental in that. It's a national trust house. They have a very good archive of the history of the domestic servants in that house, and they started displaying that archive, and people got very interested because for a lot of British people, they they had relatives and ancestors who were in service. That was the biggest profession in Britain for probably 200 years. Hundreds of thousands of people in any given year were working in domestic service. So many people, it's part of their family history. And so they want to go to these houses. They want to see the places where their ancestors worked. And that's become a huge part of country house tourism. And I think that was really the moment where country house tourism started to get away from an emphasis on rich people living in big houses and what kind of paintings did they own and, you know, what were all these fancy things that were in the houses. And we started to take a broader interest in the world of the country house and all of the things that it encompasses. And so I think now the debate about the inclusion of the history of slavery that underlies a lot of country houses in Britain, uh, the inclusion of empire, I think we're starting to see an even further broadening of that, which I think is very healthy. What I would like to see, and, and I think part of what my book is trying to articulate, is that there's other histories of the country house that need to be brought out as well, right? You know, sometimes unpleasant, sometimes violent, sometimes difficult histories of the country house that's not to minimize slavery, which I think is hugely important and needs to be there, but I think there's a lot of other stories that can be told alongside of slavery, which can help to enrich our perspective on the country house today. Right. And I think for anyone wanting to dig into that, obviously your book is a great place to start. I can't recommend it enough. But for people who are visiting any country houses, have you got any hot tips at all for people to like look out for certain things that might tell them a bit more about the history of these places? I think always, you know, talk to the room stewards, right? They often know things that are super interesting. I've picked up all sorts of little bits and pieces from them. I think sometimes when you see an object that, you know, quote unquote, doesn't belong, that may be an object that comes from somewhere else. When you see a reference to, you know, something that's come into a house, you know, from India or it could be France, right? But something that's coming from somewhere else, think about that a little bit. Like we, we think about France, right, as this arch enemy of England for so long, and that's accurate in some ways. 
But I think we also see a lot of French influence in country houses. And, and I think if we think about that for a few minutes, we can start to get a handle on this very complex, very love-hate relationship with France that England has experienced for a long time. So it tells us something not just about the world of the country house, but about English culture more generally. Wonderful. Well, I'll certainly be doing that my next visit to one of these sites. And finally, um, Stephanie, perhaps you could take us into one or two of your research trips, just because I can imagine it's just so much fun going to a lot of these places. <laughs> it is, although I have to say, uh, my my husband once went, I, I also included Ireland in what I was talking about. And so he happened to be with me one time on a trip that we were going, and he was like, okay, two weeks, we're going to look at country houses. This is going to be great. And I have to say about after the 40th Victorian kitchen, <laughs> he was quite ready to be done with country houses. So it's not always as uh, wonderful as, as you might think. But I do have to say one reason why I wrote a second book is because I thought, oh, I'm going to miss that going around to all of these houses as well. I would I also put in a plug for maybe people out there who are interested in sort of local history that country houses, the archival research for them is very, very interesting because this wasn't just going around to country houses and looking at the houses. It was also looking in the archives. And in England, country house archival material is in the county archives. So I would sort of troop around. I went to 55 archives over the course of my two books on country houses. And there's this incredibly rich stuff there that very few people have looked at. And there's all these, you know, kind of treasures out there, you know, in the local archives. So if you live in a place where there's a big country house and you're interested in history, it's worth, you know, kind of popping into your county archive or your local heritage center and and just, you know, seeing what they have because they have all kinds of cool stuff that really no one's ever looked at. That was Stephanie Barczewski. Her book, How the Country House Became English, is out now, published by Reaction. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.